to inclusionism where we like to say individuals are at their best when they identify with the community and communities are only at their best when they identify all of their individuals i'm your host james felton keith and as usual i'm here with peter williamson how you doing james i'm good i'm you know i'm just working trying to find a minute to take off and and do this show you know before we get to the show i just want to make a quick announcement to everyone who hasn't already Wherever you are in the world, go to basicincomemarch.com. We're two weeks away from the march. Put in your zip code, find out where the march is near you. We've got more than 40 cities. If you're you know, in South Korea, if you're in Japan, if you're in London, if you're in LA, New York, Atlanta, Chicago, you name it, um, there's a basic income march near you. And we need to organize more around the money that companies owe you. So basicincomemarch.com. Now back to the the usual chaos. Peter, what? what no, that's right though. The the way that, you know, community identifies all the members within it is to be like, you wrote this piece of the pie because of your participation in the economic process, which goes well beyond just going to work every day and, you know, working with your hand, your mind, your body, whatever it is, you know, our social interactions provide so much of the basis of our economic growth and as a story that we need to tell, I think the UBM March is a great place to, for people to come and learn the beginnings about how the economy is much more than what we believe it to be. It is, Definitely. but yeah. And plus you get to socialize and meet some great people and participate yeah. in that same process. Year one, when we were doing this, I like that you mentioned the socialized piece. I remember talking to, again, a bunch of intellectuals early on at the, I think it was the North American Basic Income Congress. And again, a lot of intellectuals and a lot of folks go, oh, what do marches do? Why, why should we even do this? And after we did it, they were crying and hugging. You know, I'm, I'm not a, a, a religious man, at least in the, in the spiritual form, but I do, at, at least I would like to think that I understand the, the value of, of religions and, and religious services. And what I told all these people is having a march will feel like church. I think that language initially, you know, pushed them off as we were at, you know, CUNY in East Harlem talking about these heady issues. I was like, it's about, you know, bringing it to the streets and doing something together. You know, people are literally walking and sweating and yelling and chanting together. It's just one of the most human things uh, that you can do. I think this movement, if we could have called it that before 2019, was really lacking that grassrootsy spiritual game that um, that marching and protesting provides. And so, you know, now we've grown, grown. We've seen that there has been a, a real need. We grew from, you know, one city to 30 cities in the first year. And, you know, now it's, it's toppling 40. And so, yeah, folks, you know, go and figure out where your march is. You know, figure out how to participate, whether you march the whole march or you show up at the end or you show up at the beginning. Uh, it's about finding other people who have 
narratives and things to say about money that we're due, you know, in, in your own backyard and telling different stories about what UBI is or what basic incomes are. I don't think people think about, you know, the Affordable Care Act as an attempt on basic income, you know, the child tax credit as an attempt on a basic income, you know, mm -hmm. so many uh, different mechanisms where governments try to distribute money back to the people are really attempts to establish basic incomes that are usually thwarted by greedy bastards who don't want you to have a dime. You know, this is a us versus them sort of argument. And, uh, and we need more perspectives, more people's stories to better make that argument. And so, um, and so we hope everyone comes out no matter sort of what your life looks like, even if you're a high earner, um, you need to be at this march because this is about, it's about inclusive sustainability. It's about not having a world where everyone, you know, resents everyone else because there is this pervasive sense of desperation and, and not having. So anyway, I think it's, it's, fa it's fascinating that you bring up in a, you know, jumped off and on the socializing piece, the interaction piece, the reliance on each other. And, you know, that all, that whole aspect of it, because I think that ties in sort of nicely to, you know, the biggest story of, of this week, I think we can talk about, which is the fact that, you know, Joe Biden is saying, I'm going to direct OSHA to mandate that all, you know, employers with over a hundred workers either, basically set forth this is the the new like working health uh, healthy workplace standard is if you got over 100 folks working for you you got to either have your folks all be vaccinated or getting tested weekly Hell and, yeah. and the and the whole point of this casting this as an osha regulation is in the, that sort of communal like well-being and safety piece that you were just talking about you know that ubi is one big piece of expansion of healthcare rights is another big piece of because our health you know, outcomes are so intertwined with one another mm -hmm. that it, you know, what happens in a workplace is not just a bunch of individual choices, but actually communal choices that affect everybody. You go to a place and you, you know, are vaccinated, but somebody, you know, is not vaccinated in your workplace. And you, you know, you become a, a vector of transmission for say the Delta variant. Listen, and then somehow your kid ends up with it, like, because they, you know, they're eight years old and not yet, you know, eligible for the vaccine that person's choice in the workplace to come in unvaccinated and untested affects your child's you know health outcomes it's not it's not a, it's not a game and it, the really funny thing is something i literally just saw on twitter 2 seconds ago yeah. uh, i don't know if everybody in the audience is familiar with tommy laren the sort of right wing uh, gun nut you know talking head person she came, she became famous for a, a minute there I don't even remember exactly, but I just remember her rocking around with an AR-15 a lot and taking photos and being like, you'll never take this, take this over my dead body like that. She got famous for a quick second in <laughs> politics. And so this is Tommy Laren talking in April 25th of 2019 about a measles outbreak that happened in LA, which people, you know, have, you know, forgotten, but we did have these weird measles outbreaks that came back. Yeah. So she's saying, now we have a measles outbreak in LA County, as if you don't have enough problems. If not vaccinating your kid only impacted your kid, fine but that's not the case. Vaccinate your kids or stay home. That's Tommy Laren who then, you know, today, what? today, right. this is her today, religious vaccine exemption. I worship Jesus Christ, not Lord Fauci. 
She's literally re reversing her exact position, being like, it's not just your choice, it affects everybody, to being like, now I get to say whatever, I get to have whatever I want, it's my personal choice, which is just the ultimate in, you know, this is what it has become to deal with Republicans in this country, is that they literally have zero consistency on any of these issues. It's just like, it's like dealing with children. Everybody who's ever dealt with like small children can recognize this exact behavior, where they say one thing on one day and then they say the exact opposite another day and you know as a parent you're like okay you try and explain to the child you've got to be consistent if you if you believed x on you know yesterday you got to believe x today you can't just change your mind because it's more convenient for you today that's right. not how the world works but we right. literally have an entire political party that just flips its script every single and you know you got people like governor abbott talking about you know it's freedom of choice in texas to not get vaccinated while you know stripping away a woman's freedom of choice to get an abortion like you you, you gotta you, you can't just flip the script when it when it's inconvenient for you and but there's no way to talk to these folks and explain to them that they're being completely inconsistent with their own stated beliefs but i saw someone say the uh the one star on the flag in texas mm -hmm. is, is a review it's yep. like a, it's like a because on, on yelp you can, can't do less than one star yeah I right. saw that one they but like it's just it's just crazy like i think it, everyone forgets that like osha that that was signed into law by president richard nixon that was yeah. a republican president saying like yeah we actually need a law and a, a regulatory body whose job it is to make sure that workplaces are safe that we have inspectors that we have a place for people to you know tell you know come and whistleblow about unsafe workplaces and then dramatically reduced workplace injuries they used to people just get used to hurt on the job much more regularly because we didn't have rules saying that you know employers were actually liable and responsible for the quality of workplace that they provided for their employees they were just like you know oh sorry like things that people say about oh sorry you live in texas and you want to get an abortion go move somewhere else like it's not that easy it's not that easy to get another job if you're if you're you know working at a construction site and your boss doesn't care about your safety and he's like lax with all kinds of safety regulations and people are falling off like shoddy ladders people right. are like, oh get another job like how, how easy is it to go get another job that is not that is not the response the response is no no we as a society say hey employer you got to check those ladders and make sure that you know the steps on them work so people aren't falling and breaking their bones and the idea that you could pass something like osha or the federal drug administration or like even basic clean water laws like you wouldn't get clean water laws passed today like and these were laws signed into laws by republicans like it is wild to think how far that party has just swung into the literal like i'm a kid i get what i want nana nana boo boo like perspective the, the question is do they have do they have uh do they have numbers you know do they, could they win can they win house seats and can they win the presidency i mean I don't think so. I don't think they could win the present presidency, but they they are they are winning house seats, uh, and and I think they're they're putting up a hell of a fight in a lot of battleground seats right now that we're gonna, you know, we're really gonna have to double down for just to keep some sanity uh, in this country uh, in the coming six months. Yeah, I, mean, I just think that people have to realize that when you're voting you know these days you're, you're not even voting you know for political parties you're voting for some folks who want to have some rules and try and make things a little better versus a group of folks who say 
I got mine, good luck to you on getting yours. And if you can, it's not my problem. And anybody who values a weekend, who values overtime, who values having a safe work, safe workplace, who values having healthcare, there's only one party that believes in that anymore. And I know we're talking to a New York audience that overwhelmingly you know, is supportive yeah. of that idea. But for the folks out there talking to people who have like family members in other places, this is a political party completely convinced of, that it is not their responsibility that their neighbor be safe, be healthy, have a house, have a job. They just don't, do not care. It is not their problem. And yeah. it turns to a hyper-religious version of libertarianism where it's like every man for himself, um, except they adopt some form of sort of uh, religious community around, around certain issues. And I think you made a perfect example with the woman who's like, you know, we need to vaccinate against measles, but not, but not COVID. Uh, I was on a phone with some folks from, they, they tried not to talk politics with me, but I was on a phone with some economic development folks in Singapore yesterday. And no matter how focused the conversation was on business and tech and stuff going on in Singapore, they kept talking about how they have vaccinated 85% of their people, which is not perfect, but it's better than us and better than everywhere else on the planet. And they just kept coming back to, I'm so disappointed in all of you in the States. And I was like, can we keep this conversation slightly <laughs> professional and, and, um, and keep going from there? But they were just, I think the world is flabbergasted, at least the, the world of citizens that can read um but look man this is this is where we are you know there's a culture war on top of it we got to acknowledge that politics isn't about policy it's about you know tribes and power yeah and emotions and, yeah my main worry is that you know you know can we keep the the big tent tribe together even if us as as democrats as registered and even you know in my case elected democrats at the county and state level can we keep people between the spectrum of, and I hate that this is a spectrum, but I guess it is, the spectrum of Joe Biden to Bernie Sanders. Can we keep them all on the same page? And can we make sure that that is the majority, uh, not only at the national level, but also when we're thinking about uh, local elections? And so that makes me think about um, something you brought up earlier and what we were talking about talking about is the potential that Andrew Yang is going to run as a third party candidate. So I've been getting texts about this left and right. Mm -hmm. um, what, so I haven't been in the news. So I don't know. Is this, is it, is this real? Well, is this there's, there's definitely like, rumors out there on the internet. Um, I and I feel like he's kind of been trending in that direction. Pretty much, you know, his whole entire, you know, life on the political scene. He's never really been at home as a Democrat. He's kind of tried to carve out his own specific following. And he's, you know, gone from having a campaign to having a nonprofit to running for mayor, all to sort of try and build out, uh, you know, a, a faction that he is the leader of. And, I, you know, the, the reason that I always, as a UBI supporter, differentiated myself from Andrew Yang in conversations early on when people like, oh, are you a Yang supporter? Being like, no, no, I'm a UBS supporter from, be from before Andrew Yang made it popular. 
and I'm also a UBI supporter in a different way, I feel like, than Andrew Yang, because uh, the guy really is a, has a story that he's trying to sell about the world, which I think he has been largely wrong about, his whole belief in automation and how jobs were going to disappear in the short term. Certainly, absolutely, 100% untrue. In fact, you know, we got a shortage of, you know, workers, skilled workers, some people say, I just would say, you know, we have a lack of highly paid well enough jobs to attract workers, but we're definitely not moving, transitioning to any kind of automated, you know, workplace environment. It's just, it's not happening. Maybe some jobs get automated out, but millions more get created that require human beings. They do. It's a fact. It's a proven fact. Yeah. And I just think that the guy has, has tried to sell a story that he is a sort of a, you know, the, the prophet of the future. And I think that he believes that, and, and I think he's, you know, onto something that there are a lot of folks who are sort of dispirited and unhappy with both Republicans and Democratic parties. I think that has a lot to do with our, you know, system well, right. of federal government and our media, not really with the, with the parties themselves, but I think he's definitely trying to capitalize on that. So, I mean, so, uh, so a few things. Right. We know that sort of the technicalities of how policy actually works isn't what translates over in the rallying voters. I'm looking at an article right now on my other screen about from 10 hours ago in Politico that says basically his publisher and his book, basically his, his book is an indictment on the what he calls the era of institutional failure. And his publisher, which is not a good sign that this is actually going to happen, is floating this. Now, that's going to drive book sales, number one. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was his publisher and I was running marketing, probably do the same thing. But I will say, like, my executive director at the, at the data union was tweeting, you know, about this, and he seemed excited. Uh, he's down in North Carolina, uh, you know, 30, white guy, great guy, progressive guy. Uh, and so there's some of these folks that are excited about it. And so I do think that there's a certain culture to what humanity forward means, which is sort of his slogan, and a culture to what forward means in this era where people are frustrated with both parties. At the same time, when we think about the major third party candidates who could afford to pull it off, the Ross Perot's and you know, uh, and the like, it, it wasn't real. It wasn't real enough to affect the Democratic majority. It did put a dent into the Republican majority I do think that Andrew Yang running a third party will pull some Republicans over because I've been personally attacked by some Republicans that like Andrew Yang. And I think one of them constantly puts stuff on Twitter about when I was on a webinar on YouTube and I, I said I would like punch this dude. And they're like, this guy hmm. in Harlem is violent. And I just want to say, you know, on the radio, I will drag that dude down a flight of steps until his face falls off. I'm totally available for abject violence. Um, against these, you know, Trump the Yangers. I don't give a damn who they are. But aside from that, I do think that he'll pull some of that vote over. But I also think he could pull over some potential Democrats. So that's one piece. I think there's a culture of what he's doing that people like. They like the idea of humanity moving forward and and UBI as a central catalyst to that. Um, At the same time, to piggyback on what you said, the automation play is more of a scare tactic than something that's real. Automation is a problem because we are not uh, structured to redeploy people and jobs where they need to go. But automation 
is in no fashion ending work or ending human toiling where we have to interact with each other and monitor systems that we build, nor does it end the need for us to understand systems that we build and all the job data over the course of the past 20, 30 years, if you look at it, even though jobs have changed and the nature of work has changed, jobs themselves have not gone away. And so it's just not a thing. And we're going to need so many home health aides as this population age. Nobody like everyone wants to talk about automation because it's sexy and robots coming in doing stuff. It's like the Matrix or whatever, which kind of hilarious. Matrix is coming back. Right. But like at the same time, the real world is made up of home health aides, an aging population, you know, a pandemic running in wild. The fact that economic activity goes down in states with higher vaccination rates. Yep. Then it states without it because people here are rightfully like that this disease is bad. We're not gonna we're gonna cut back on our activity, and you know the places that where they just accept the the, the social risk and they just accept the fact that people are gonna die needlessly. Like continue like that's that's really what it is. Is we got to get Delta and all the variants under control so we can get people back going to restaurants, going to shows, spending money. Pay and we got to pass, you know, Joe Biden's three and a half trillion dollar bill. Like, we got to get better wages for home health aides because we're going to need millions of them as we get older. We need, we have all the tools we already have to build a darn good American society. We don't need a new party. We don't need a new vision. We just need some functional politics. We need to pass a couple laws that change the way our Senate and our presidential elections run so they actually are fair and representative of people. And we could have a darn good, we could have the kind of United States those folks in Singapore want you to like have here. Ones that, you know, get shocked because, you know, nearly 70% of Americans are vaccinated with at least one shot. Like overwhelmingly people do want to get the vaccination and get back to normal and like get back to have, living their lives, having jobs, going to things. Right. And you, you got this, you know, section of folks who for a variety of different reasons are opposed to it, but they're big enough that they affect all the rest of us. You make me think about um, the the book we we published a couple uh, months ago called Hacking Digital Ethics. For everybody not familiar, Google Hacking Digital Ethics. Ethics, excuse me, I don't know why I can't speak right now. And a, and a book will come up. But one of the cornerstones of this book is the the two authors, uh, these you know two philosophers out of Scandinavia. They write about communal rights over human rights. And they, and they sort of ask the question in an elaborate way around what rights are communities owed versus individual rights that humans uh, are owed. And I think over the course of the past, you know, 70 years after the, the World War II, a lot of our growth in the Western world has been specific to individual rights and what has turned into what we call human rights, I would say in the past, you know, 40 or so years. But in a world, in a pandemic riddled world where also, you know, climate crises are around the corner left and right, one has to ask the question, what communal rights are we owed? Like the question, are we all entitled to places where we're not going to catch uh, a virus because we're going to the grocery store or because we're going to ride public transit, etc.? Like, are we owed that? Are we owed that amount of safety? as individuals who live in the collective of pick a city, any city, New York City, any other city. And so I think it would be interesting if a political candidate, uh, especially at the national level, especially at the highest level for POTUS, uh, 
injects that into their campaign. And I would love to even see it from a third party candidate if it helps the main two candidates uh, talk about it. Now, you know, that said, uh, I'm a Democrat. And even though I'm a, you know, hyper liberal Democrat, I do see the need in us having this big umbrella that is a Democratic Party to try and hold the diverse factions of America together to see us move forward. And so, you know, I welcome whoever's looking to jump into this race. I think, you know, Joe Biden certainly can and has the chops to win another four years. I know when he was running, a lot of people were thinking he would only run a four-year term, but people are living longer uh, and healthier. And all I know is for the safety of, of my family and my wits, I think we need another four years of, um, of pressing against the incrementalism that we're getting from, from Joe Biden. Uh, and I think we'll do we'll do well with something like that. But anyway, I just think that that's one of the questions that we have to ask back to the communal rights. And I think, uh, you know, Andrew Yang, if he runs a campaign, you know, might be willing to introduce something like that. But for everyone who is excited about a potential campaign like that, let me just say, if you're thinking about something third party, if you're even thinking about something more progressive than, you know, progressive Democrats, then you just look at all the other failed parties that exist out there. You really just look at the Green Party, who is not pragmatic enough to run a real world government, but definitely left enough to tell us about all the problems that exist in the world. I generally like the stuff that Green Party people talk about, but it doesn't get anything done. You know, I think it's the same way when we think about, you know, the Bernies of the world, bless his heart. I think it is necessary to exist in a big tent party and press it to the left, if you can, by gaining more political power. But at the same time, that is the extent of the role. It's not legislating mm -hmm. because those folks don't get anything done. So if you like, if folks, if you like the idea of another third party existing, you might as well just go and register for the Green Party and talk about climate, talk about, you know, um, uh, equity, uh, which is, again, things we're already doing in the Democratic Party, but we at least have the potential to get some of these things published and passed. And uh, I don't think whatever the forward movement is going to be will be, I don't think that it's going to be uh, viable, but it's cute to see. Uh, that said, I will say if Andrew Yang was Cory Booker, they may have been president already. Uh, I think there's a real cultural barrier that we have to deal with here in this country. And so the one thing I do like about Andrew Yang's candidacy, his past candidacy and whatever he plans to do in the future, is that it has the potential to normalize uh, Asian Americans from wherever their, you know, ethnic background is from. It has the potential to normalize them uh, here in this country, because I do think that I saw a lot of abject racism towards him from all sorts of people on the blue side of the coin, you know, black, white, you name it. And I wasn't appalled, I expected it. And I knew I was sort of taking a risk even myself and supporting them uh, when I did. But yeah. No, I, I think, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. And uh, well, I, you know, anybody who can bring more political participation can be a useful person. I think that he has galvanized a whole bunch of new folks to, to start getting involved and getting it. Um, I would just, yeah, encourage everybody to basically, you know, think along the lines you just said, like, 
what's my actual plan for getting stuff done here and winning some elections and getting some real power to get stuff passed? Because in the end, that is what government's job is to do is to pass, you know, things like, you know, OSHA bill to pass things like Medicaid expansion to pass things like a child, you know, tax credit and per, uh, in perpetuity that would cut, you know, child poverty in this country by 40% and just help people raising kids in this country who have it harder here than a whole lot of other places around the world. I think a lot of folks, a lot of folks, and you got it, this funny happens when people travel to other places and they, and they realize, you know, you got folks going to other places and they, and they, they, they find out that, you know, other places uh, give you like a year's worth of maternity, they give like, you know, paternity leave as well. They pay you to like to start, you know, stay at home and, and know you get your kid and take care of it and start raising a family. And then they come back here and they say, why can't we have stuff like that here? And at yeah. the same time, they go and vote for Republicans. And it's like, well, you're the reason we can't have that kind of stuff here. I, yeah. I had a friend who's from Utah who, who you know, weird state, Utah. They're yeah. kind of they're kind of, you know, left on environmental issues because they love they love their their, their nature. But yeah. on anything like sort of social, political, like economic, they they just they swing to the right. But then they go see these other places and they're like, why can't I have, you know, I'm having a kid. You know how hard it is to pay for childcare, you know literally like the the cheapest you know that child care was going for was like sixteen hundred dollars a month in in utah and, and that's like so imagine what how much child care costs here in the in new york city like we make it so hard to start a family and we need young people we need a whole bunch of new young people you know innovating going to school and then also just working to take care of all of our elderly butts as soon as because we're going to be old soon and a whole lot more of us are we get know right now yeah yeah and the idea that you know we were against immigration at the same time as 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 you know having an aging population it's like who's going to take care of your your gray old butt you know if you right. if you don't have you know bring in some folks pay them a living wage and say thank you so much for helping me live like the best quality of life i can in my in my older years it's that's just, what they were saying in that in that singapore call they were like you know we're not having enough kids at a high enough rate and so we need immigration and you know we love you all you know come over here and figure out if we can build a piece of your company over here but yeah i mean we should be thinking about the exact same thing i mean we've got a lot more country to fill up than they do but we're still not having you know children at the rate we would need to to take care of us as we age and so yeah immigration is necessary but yeah i think it just it comes down to you know culturalism classism racism uh sexism you know in a lot of those countries where they have perks everyone looks like each other it's true and yeah. i think you know our you know we're not perfect and we don't have everything that they have i still think we're better off than they are because we're still here endeavoring to get the melting pot right and whatever we are successful at i mean we uh, as americans whatever we do well it will be a roadmap for how the future should exist because every other country that is doing well is pretty homogenous. Whether mm -hmm. we're talking about Nordic countries, whether we're talking about China, whether we're talking about certain parts of India, India is actually you know, a bit interesting and different because of their caste system. Uh, and even funny enough, when I was talking to those folks in Singapore yesterday, they were talking to me about the Indian from the you know, subcontinent India Indians that have been in Singapore for generations versus the new ones that come over from different castes and how they act. And it was basically this uh, 
ghettoism that they were talking about. And I was like, oh, yeah, I they were, you know, spending time over explaining to me. I was like, look, I've been around. I get it. You know, I've I've dealt with, you know, you know, uppity black folks in in Boston, Massachusetts that didn't like my Detroit accent. And I just, again, live to push them down flights of stairs. I don't know why I feel violent today. I probably feel like this every day though. But anyway. Um, yeah, we just gotta yeah. have the common sense to to yeah. share the innovation and the progress that we have. And they like, don't feel like, yeah, I mean, that. well, that's the deal. It's about who's a citizen, right? Mm -hmm. not, not in a broader, umbrella way, but like who gets access to this progress and who that we go through that in the US right now. People are like, well, is such and such American? Do they do it the American way? And, and that means a very specific thing depending on you know who you're talking to i think i remember seeing a, a jay-z and kanye west video who I, you know, I love jay can't stand kanye at all but they were doing that some video and it was a big american flag in the back and you know being a political person that you know is married to someone who used to be in advertising all we were doing was looking at each other like oh my god are they trying to hack the american idea uh which i thought was cool but it caught me off guard you know, and I was like, yeah, I guess we got to do that. I guess we got to tell some more stories, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, look, I mean, we got our work cut out for us, but we we do have to, in this next political cycle, 2022, that is not 2024, we need to start considering and producing political rhetoric around what the community is owed versus what individuals are owed. So the sort of human rights versus communal rights and I don't mean we need to be talking about it in the academic way and how I just mentioned it, but we need to find savvy ways to have casual conversations with everyday people to make them more moral about how they interact with their neighbors. Um, or we lose because this is this is where our church is now. It, it is the, the the church of public opinion per political office. And if we aren't sort of preaching morals to, to the folks that are our constituents, then we're failing them and we're failing ourselves because we won't have the opportunity to pitch them policies that make their lives better. So they won't be available to hear them because they won't yeah. be used to hearing stuff uh, in the way that they need to. So- And that's you know, why we have such a big problem with our the, our sort of the priestly caste of our, or, you know, so of our social religion, which is the people I would say that's the media in this country, because they are the ones who mediate literally other people's like live experience of the world is they they tell them the stories about how yeah. they should put together their understanding of the world. And instead of talking about how vaccines, you know, have a already been found constitutional back in 1905. So you got all these takes out there in the media being like, oh, is this constitutional? Is it constitutional? What is it? Like, already we already covered that one. Well, I didn't know that was a thing. What, what was oh, that? A Supreme Court or something? What, yeah, Supreme Court was found vaccines to be mandates to be constitutional because for the same basic simple reason, you yeah. can't. Yeah, you, if everybody gets to make their own choices, then we have absolute chaos and an unlivable society. Like right. your choices affect me. Right. But not, not only that, we should be you know talking about the fact that Joe Biden's trying to get you know improved uh, you know working conditions and wages for for home health aid workers. Like that he that this is a huge piece of the of his bill that you know joe manchin's having difficulties coming to terms with and like and, and 
it's just instead of that, we got media coverage today about how literally all the big media companies had at least one story about how Kim Jong-un came back looking in, in, you know, slimmer and svelter. He's back in the public eye again. It's like, this is, this is literally like the biggest waste of all of our collective times to talk about, you know, how this was COVID, some, you know, COVID uh, summer, winter, whatever was a glow up for Kim Jong-un. Like, what is this? This is not right. real. And this is this is what the priests are telling us, though, to to you know consume and think on in our in our daily lives. And I think yeah, we really we preach on the media, right? Yeah, we, we, right. we talk about it a lot on this show, but like we also got to talk about it in our homes and with each other to be like, who's telling you the stories that you're listening to, and what is their collective interest and incentive? Because if they make money off of controversy and chaos and clicks and ad revenue. Right. They may they may not be telling you the the most moral upright stories to to guide your sort of moral and ethical path through life. They might be telling you stuff that makes them money. Like, and that's right. the funny thing is that everybody kind of gets this to some degree. It's like it's the argument you know against big pharma's trying to you know get us all to take the vaccine because they make billions of dollars off. It's like if you if you like again the consistency. If you see how like profit motive incentivizes or potentially incentivizes people's behavior in this one area you got to yeah. see how it affects it in a much bigger broader and like constant area and and the fact of the matter is i saw another hilarious tweet today that came out somebody was like because joe biden mentioned in the in his uh in his speech you know defending the vaccine mandate that fox news has a vaccine mandate for all of their employees yeah. and this this one dude was like are you telling me that tucker and like all i can't remember what the names of the rest of them are all vaccinated and they've just been They've just been lying to me this whole time. It's like, yes, my dude, really? they they have in fact just been yeah, lying to you the whole time. Like, day one, right? Yeah, and it's like so earlier than us. Right. Those folks are not there to to help you. They're telling you some convenient lies to get you to keep your eyeballs on there, so their ad revenue goes up and they make their twenty million dollars a year as a talking head personality. It's 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 right there in front of you, folks. Like the there there is a lot of grift and scamming out there, but it's not the folks you know trying to you know, scientists out there trying to make a life-saving vaccine in like two years time that has been tested by hundreds of millions around the world and been, you know, approved by the FDA. That's not the scam. The scam is the folks telling you to go take the horse paste. And before that, the hyper quiline, whatever nonsense that was before that, just to keep you angry and watching them and then clicking over to watch the, the ads uh, right. on reverse mortgages from like shady people. Everybody forgets Reverse mortgages are part of like the same shady package of stuff that crashed the economy back in 2007, 2008. It's crazy how fast we forget about all this stuff. And also, just because we've been coming up on it, the 20 year anniversary of 9 11. Yeah, I was going to jump to that. I, mean, I, I, mean, I think people have yeah. forgotten how crazy, yeah. capital C R A Z Y, crazy America got in the, the years after 9-11 and, and compare that to the reaction. We had, a, we had a grifter in chief. I mean, the last two Republican presidents have been like the biggest con men of all time. Like I just, I remember how we all felt about Bush after 2008. And, and, and then I remember, you know, by 2018, he was the good guy again because, because Trump was in Trump, Trump. Yeah. but but yeah, I mean, in in remembering, you know, 9-11 and even the the recklessness of the administration in responding to very clear threats, and there's plenty of evidence out on this that came through, you know, you know, aside from them, it just 
you know, aside from basically them neglecting to focus on something that that probably could have been prevented. Um, yeah, the world got a whole hell of a lot crazy, or you know, after. Um, and I remember where I was on 9-11. I wasn't here in New York, but I remember thinking it was fake. I remember, I mean, it was just my knee-jerk reaction. I didn't think that for like hours and days. Mm. But for about 10 or 20 minutes. It was, was unbelievable, like, yeah. I walked past and, you know, I was, let's see, on 9-11, I was, I was in college. I was uh, like a sophomore, junior in college. I think I just walked past the TV and then I walked past again. I was like, is that real? Is it a movie? Is it a commercial? What's, you know, what are the Twin Towers doing? Um, and then I, I paused for a minute. I was like, this cannot be, you, know, you just wait to sort of, you know, sometimes you see something, you think you may have misread a word and then you go, let me read this slowly to understand. And then my mind was blown. You know, and then they showed the the towers falling. And then, you know, I got obsessed with the conspiracy theories and, and then the uh, the smoke plumes looking like the devil's face. And uh, like in those things that came out like the, you know, shortly after. But I yeah, I just I, I, I couldn't believe it. It's also I can't I also can't believe that it's been 20 years and that there's a whole generation of people who participate in society, 20 year olds, that don't really have any concept of, uh, of 9-11, you know? It also makes me feel like a relatively old man, but. I mean, you're, you're just, you're growing into wisdom. That's all it is. But like, I think Where for folks, I Where was actually like first days of, uh, of my freshman year at NYU. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, that was, that was definitely a real crazy day for me. Yeah. Uh, and I remember like walking all the way home because all the subways were obviously shut down and, and you know, just being, yeah, just trying to process all that. And it, it admittedly was the craziest thing that, that had ever happened in my life up to that point. But right. I think people kind of forget how crazy everything went off the rails from there. We passed the Patriot Act. We spent $8 trillion in counting on crazy wars invaded different countries that had nothing to do with it. Toby Keith wrote a like hit song about nuking you know countries in in the arab world and that was like a number one record at the time henry kissinger apparently just thought that we needed to go back and invade iraq not because they really had anything to do with it but because the because the the muslim world was trying to humiliate us with 9 11 and we needed to humiliate them back even harder because in this battle and this clash of civilizations we literally like we're in this you know conversation about class of clash of civilizations they and it's been circulating again like the you know all these newspapers had the these cutouts of what uh, osama's uh bin laden's you know hidden cave complex looked like how it was you know this super hidden secret bunker wow. like right it was something like, like out of batman and it was then, a like, villain he, and then we got caught he was like hiding like a couple of feet under the ground like with a scraggly ass beard having not eaten for days like right the, he right. was a super villain like who was you know changing the face of the world they got us with a couple of Spirit Airline tickets. I mean, it was yep. just, it was our problem, you know. He was not like the Joker or the Penguin. He was not a super villain who disappeared right when you turn around after talking to him. No. And we it's spent crazy. $8 trillion, changed 
like the entire like functioning society got all the security theater. You can't wear your shoes in, in the airports anymore. Uh-huh. New, York City, New York City, we're still subject to having your bags searched, just randomly searched going, going on the subway. That's right. crazy. That's a massive invasion of our privacy that we just have signed up for for 20 straight years. That's a Fourth over, Amendment violation. Over this one, you know, incident that was horrific and tragic and terrible. And yeah. yet we have an ongoing COVID crisis having killed over like 200 times more people than died in 9-11. And we're arguing over whether or not, you know, vaccines are a good idea. And, yeah. so, and, and back then we were like $8 trillion down the drain. We're going to have, you know, pictures of Americans, you know, torturing folks in Guantanamo Bay, doing all kinds of horrible things to them and, and taking like happy photos. Everyone forgets Guantanamo Bay. How truly like horrifying. It's still there. It's still there. Like we we did we did some incredibly horrible like and expensive and crazy things in response to that, and yeah. nobody batted an eyebrow the whole time. Like the the authorization to vote for war, there was one vote against it. There yeah. was one vote against it. it and and now we, like we, we you know we mobilized so much blood, sweat, and tear and treasures to to respond to this one incident, and we're still arguing now over you know whether we can pass a bill to try and you know help our economy recover and you know get everybody vaccinated to get over this pandemic that has killed 600,000 Americans and counting. Like the, the fact of the matter that we're even arguing over this when we did all that for over 9-11, it's just something I think folks need to stop because life does go fast and you kind of forget about all these things along the way, but it does. Yeah. We, we mobilized an immense response from the country in response to 9-11. And like everybody was on board. There's the whole unity, like we're all Americans now, like the yeah. world. Yeah. But like, and then when the French didn't want to invade, you know, people started buying French wine and pouring it out into the into rivers and calling French fries freedom fries. We literally changed like the terms for like one of our sort of cultural touchstones of food over 9-11. We were like, we can't call it French because that's just insulting to all those who died on, on 9-11 because the French don't want to join the coalition of the willing. Like I think people forget how crazy the response was to that. And if you compare it to the response to COVID and the pandemic, and even the response to the you know, 2007, 2008 economic crash, which put millions out of their homes, cost millions of jobs, trillions of dollars in lost revenue. We, you know, that was just like something that we had to deal with. It's just, you know, like, but 9-11 just changed everything. And I think we need to bring that same sort of energy and commitment that we brought to response to a single instance of, as you say, some people buying some airline tickets and, you know, instead of taking people hostage on, on uh, you know, that was what, that was just what everybody assumed when somebody like took over a plane, they were gonna, you know, take the plane, like land it somewhere and demand, you know, millions of dollars or the release of some prisoners or whatever, because that was standard operating procedure for, you know, when people took over planes and said yeah, this one time about it you yeah got the, Bruce this Willis, one, Snipes, yeah this one time people. these guys decided to crash it into some buildings and they well, killed 3, everyone people. thinks about you know i mean well well not to cut you off but i just think about um i remember when i i took a job offer and moved to south africa in like 2007 and i remember the flight going over and and i'm assuming it was like 5 a.m because this um this muslim guy got up to pray, and I I felt guilty about this after because my my grandmother was Muslim. All I did was think about her and if she would frown at me. But I was slightly terrified when all the other passengers we were all looking at each other as this guy walked over by the door because it was the most space to 
kneel and pray. And all I thought was, oh my God, we're over the ocean. Um, and we're not, we're not gonna make it. Yeah, I forgot about all of the, what is it, Passenger 57, the the all the Bruce Willis and Wesley Snipes movies where someone knows karate on a plane and they stop the hijacker from asking for money. Mm-hmm. I mean, that may have been where Osama took it from. Like, you know what, man, we can go a little bit further. We can go a little bit harder and uh, and just, you know, just never leave the plane. We can suicide bomb, you know, the plane. I, I wonder, yeah, where they dig the ideas from. I see a few days ago, um, you know, some of the, you know, a bunch of the the masterminds from 9-11 are, are still, you know, being moved back and forth, you know, to Gitmo. And they're going in and out of court right now, you know, waving and smiling as if, as if they won, you know. Um, and arguably, they did, you know, they got us. And again, for, for folks not familiar, Gitmo is still, is still alive and well. It's on the southeast edge of Cuba and a country where you know we've got other sort of international relations issues and um and yeah people are still being tortured it's it's still a thing uh and I mean again it also means you know elections have consequences because if anyone else were in office I don't think that we would have been at war for 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan and all of my friends that didn't leave Detroit with me and either go to college or go somewhere else all ended up in the army or the Navy. Mm-hmm. Like I know 14 of them. Um, and that Damn. was their life. You know, that was their life. All of my 40 year old friends have time served in some capacity. Some of the older ones, it was Iraq and some of the younger ones, you know, Afghanistan, some both. Uh, and that's where we've been, man. I mean, 20 years from from one decision, you know, that I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you know, George Bush and company just, you know, let ride so that they had a reason to go back to war and use the Kissinger doctrine of uh, realism, which for anyone who's not familiar means that, you know, threat is always looming and conflict is inevitable. And so we must strike first, bomb first as as Tupac's dumbass used to say um you know for as much as i enjoy tupac's passion i don't think anything he thought long and hard about made any sense uh and you know so sorry if anybody's offended by that but the dude dude wasn't that bright um so this is where we are right 20 years later from a split decision um that this idiot made uh gw's dumbest son mm-hmm. he was his most casual and likable son and, and ran the country i mean these are these are the people we elect you know this is this is the america that we're dealing with people want to vote for somebody i heard people tell me when we were running for office i want to be able to drink a beer with my politician i'm like you don't want to have a beer with me i'm i'm low-key going crazy like i'm not I not a great time, not really. I can, you know, I can stomach it. But anyway, um, so yeah, on, on that uh, notion of, of uh, not that notion, but uh, on that topic of of nine eleven, I do want to 
bring folks attention to, because we got about 10 minutes left, uh, a new book that I am, that I'm co-editing. Uh, it's a series that there'll be more of these books uh, that are coming out. Uh, if you want to Google, uh, you know, feel free to, but the name of the book is The Ethics of Personal Data Collection in International Relations. And the subtitle is Inclusionism in the Time of COVID-19. This will be the first title that's out that has the word inclusionism in its name. There'll be more of these. There are about a dozen authors, international relations scholars from around the globe, from India to Italy, to China, to uh, Kosovo, to the, Uni the United States, uh, obviously. And uh, the book will be out in January, but we're starting to release some podcasts uh, to intro the book. Uh, the forward from the book was just released, and it's the forward is uh, from a professor, Aza Karam, and she is the secretary general of um, uh, a large NGO called Religions for Peace. Mm -hmm. And they've been around for decades. Religions for Peace is uh, basically a forum where religious leaders across every faith type, whether it's Abrahamic or non-faith, or, you know, Buddhism, uh, where they come together to talk about not only advocating for people from their own faith, but also people from other faiths. So it's, you know, sort of one unified voice for peace, and as a result, inclusion and stability, and everything that we're constantly advocating for here. And, um, you know, before we go, I, I want to play Aza's uh, forward, uh, which is only a few minutes long, just to give folks an idea of what this book is. Uh, in the international relations academic community, it's a bit groundbreaking because we're leveraging personal data as sort of a mechanism to microly identify the participants in our society. So at the beginning of inclusionism, this radio show, when we say individuals are at their best, when they identify with the community, and communities are only at their best when they identify all of their individuals. What we're really saying is that we can leverage, you know, new bureaucratic structure by identifying all of our participants and including them at the table in the power structure of advocating for how we regulate the lands with which we live in. Uh, and as a result, create more peaceful transitions of power, peaceful transactions, uh, you name it, but um, but I definitely I want to play that for folks. But Peter, I don't know if you. No, no, I'm lo I'm looking forward to hearing it. So okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna like fire this thing right up right now. So this is again Professor Dr. Azakaram, who is again the Secretary General of Religions for Peace. I would uh, Google her. Her name is spelled A Z Z A. Last name is K A R A M. She lives with uh, and is married to my good friend Pio da Silva. And at least some time of the year, they're right here in Westchester County. So again, this is the forward to the ethics of personal data collection in international relations, inclusionism in the time of COVID-19. How can spiritual transcendence safeguard peace in any community, 
let alone our planetary universe. 51 years ago, leaders of different religious institutions from around the world, representing all Christian denominations, together with their Islamic or Muslim counterparts, and with representatives from diverse faith communities, including Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, Sikh, Zoroastrian, Baha'i, indigenous, came together with two purposes in mind. The first was to assemble to advocate as one spiritual and religious voice for a holistic peace, not just the absence of war, rather seeking to prevent the very causes that lead to conflicts in the first place, including the escalating nuclear arms race and proxy wars, poverty, rampant human rights violations, and the decline of the primacy of the rule of law around the world. The second purpose, what would become religions for peace, aimed to put words into actions by practically working together at the national, regional, and global levels. From the latter inclination, interreligious councils, or IRCs, were born. These would be a structure that basically would convene the religious leaders from all faith institutions and communities in any one country and serve as a space for these leaders to meet as equals, regardless of numerical, historical, or demographic religious dynamics. In other words, in the majority or minority, old or new, monotheistic or Abrahamic or not, these faith leaders would meet as equals. For what purpose? to speak as one about the rights of all, to struggle as one for the rights and dignity of all, to ensure that no one is left behind, to hold accountable government and governance, and to be a partner of all other secular and civil society actors. These were the faith-based and faith-inspired civic actors working for the rights of all yet with a special focus on the most vulnerable. In short, theirs is a human rights mission and a human rights-based approach. Far from attempting to equalize or generalize the commonalities between each religion, this form of interfaith dialogue is more an attempt to translate deeply shared faith inspiration into common action destined for the most vulnerable anywhere. This interfaith movement was mobilized owing to incendiary rhetoric and the near catastrophic increase in nuclear arsenals. Sensing respective governments and multilateral intergovernmental entities alike were unable even to speak the language of peace, religious leaders felt an imperative to provide the alternative narrative and exemplify the actions needed to hold humanity together in peace. Soon after its founding, a Religions for Peace interreligious council was quick to take shape in South Africa, where the anti-apartheid struggle was a powerful call to action. And then in Japan, China, and Korea, where the real fears of a nuclear holocaust were an epicenter. Together, these religious actors were able to effect changes in the hearts and minds of many people. In fact, the South African Interreligious Council just about disbanded after its members were then handpicked by the new democratically elected government of South Africa. 
In Korea and Japan, secular dogmatism combined with growing and powerful economies meant a reversal of any respect for a tendency to take religious voices too much into account. Our world today, at best, resembles the calamitous dynamics of the 1970s in terms of governmental and intergovernmental ineptitudes. At worst, threats facing our world at present are significantly amplified by our very environment, planet Earth, struggling to survive. Today, we deal not only with a global pandemic, its moral, financial, and cultural ramifications abound. The novel coronavirus hit our world at a time when each and all our, of our institutions, political, economic, and financial, and social, are lame or limping along with their credibility tarnished by all manner of human weaknesses. Not least of these is an amplification of multiple forms of intersecting discriminations, combined with a deficit of ideology as well as a deficit of leadership. Our religious institutions are as tarnished as all others. Some suffer from a ludicrous sense of territoriality, internal and externally oriented struggles for power and influence amid theological disputes, racism, sexism, political corruption. The list is endless. Our institutions created to be the means of liberation, egalitarianism, economic and financial sustainability and accountability have become possibly our Achilles heel. If the multi-governmental is struggling, it is because of the Darwinian prevalence of the survival of the fittest, rather than the ethos of collaboration and connectivity. Before we believe that we have no more on which to rely or that all is lost, we must realize one simple yet glaring reality. This is the case for institutions that work in silos. Even gangs, weapons, and the illicit drug, drug trade are more efficient, lethally so, when alliances are made. Forms of human intelligence succeed better when intelligence services work together. The world wars were ended when the stronger and better coordinated allies worked more and more efficiently with one another. This is a reality that stares us in the face, yet we fail to see this reality. Each of the religious institutions that have existed literally for centuries are struggling today apart. Even when these institutions successfully come together ecumenically, this is not enough. Our world of faith is not just Christian. Our world is multi-faith. Nonetheless, our actions, or rather the actions of our institutions, remain siloed. In South Korea and Japan, the Religions for Peace interreligious councils, as with the other 90 countries where this movement grew over the last half century, are today serving millions in diverse communities, having increased their work at both advocacy and service delivery levels during the COVID-19 response. Each calamity, from HIV and AIDS to Ebola, from civil war to border tensions, from natural humanitarian disasters to man-made wars, each has been a call to actions to serve their communities together. Examples abound, including multiple forms of reconciliation between indigenous peoples and Christian churches taking place in Latin America and Africa, as interfaith efforts to save the natural habitat of the former and the very lungs of our earth, the rainforests, are being realized at national as well as multiple local levels. As 
the chapters that follow ably discuss. Our world comprises individuals vulnerable to surveillance capitalism, as in Zuboff, as explored by various authors in the pages ahead, and secular dogmatism, which is analyzed in a companion volume edited by Mazzucelli, Keith, and Holyfield. These vulnerabilities contribute to increasing polarization in societies. In this context, multi-faith work is an enactment of spiritual transcendence, which seeks to safeguard peace in communities by serving one beating heart at a time, but doing so together. WHCR 90.3 FM, New York.